Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Brian Dykma, Vice President of External Affairs at the Cardis Institute and co-author, along with Joanna Lewis, of an interesting new policy paper, Breaking Down Work Barriers for People with Disabilities. I'm grateful for the chance to speak to Brian about the paper's key insights and analysis. Thanks for joining me, Brian, and congratulations on the paper. Thanks, Sean. Very kind and glad to speak to you again. Your paper starts with an interesting distinction between disability and impairment. I thought we'd start off the conversation talking about this, these differences and why they matter. Our paper takes an understanding of disability that has emerged over time that says that disability, the fact that one is disabled, is the result not necessarily of a failure on your body or your mind, for instance, but a failure of the social setting in which you're, you're doing your work or, or living. So an easy example or an easy way to understand the difference between an impairment and a disability is that an example of an impairment is someone who, for whatever reasons, does not have the use of their legs. So they're incapable of of moving their legs, incapable of walking and so on. That's something that's an impairment. Sometimes that comes from birth. uh, Sometimes that comes as a result of an accident or, or a degenerative disease or what have you. But that failure to be able to use one's legs, that is the impairment. But that does not make you disabled. The disability comes when there are social arrangements, material arrangements, uh, say like the design of a building or social arrangements like the, the way in which you hire people and what have you that prevents you from doing the things that you could otherwise do. So an example we used in our roundtable that we did was somebody who does not have the use of their legs, who's an accountant, trained as an accountant. An accountant to do their work does not need access to their legs, obviously the person would, would prefer to have that, but does not need that. So you can do taxes, et cetera, if you're a tax accountant from a wheelchair. So that impairment does not prevent them from doing their work. However, if their office has stairs, then suddenly they're disabled because they can't get down the stairs. They can't get to their desk or what have you. And that's true. That's the sort of very clear example of the way in which our physical environment makes a disability, creates the disability. But that's also true, as you as you know, Sean, we're social creatures and you know, there are all kinds of things that get around, you know, perhaps it's work hours uh, for somebody who has an, another uh, issue where they have to be at medical issues or what have you. Disability is the social context in environments that have been designed to serve the needs and capacities of people without impairment. So, you know, clearly a place with stairs is built for people who have legs. And if you were to put a ramp in, for for example, for this this accountant, that person would not be disabled in in the sense of that that particular workplace. So, 
that's helpful, I think, because it actually helps us realize that, first of all, we're all actually all dependent upon one another, that the 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 world in which we live affects different people in different ways. And it makes us, I think, more cognizant of the fact that not all impairments need to result in disabilities. And I think that actually is a hopeful thing when we're talking about the relationship between disabilities and work. We'll come back to the distinction and how it manifests itself in public policy later in the conversations. But I want to ask about one other conceptual point that sort of frames the paper that you and Joanna produced. You do something in the paper that you don't see very often. You basically outline some key normative principles that guide your work and the work of Cardis more generally on these questions. A two-part question for you. What are the normative ideas shaping your work? And, and secondly, why do you think we don't see more of this from think tanks and policy scholars? What is the, the hesitancy to communicate the underlying values behind people's work and analysis? I'll answer the first ones first, or the first one first, because I actually do think it actually helps make sense of this paper and some of our recommendations especially in light of the way these things are normally talked about. So basically three principles. The first principle, and this emerges out of stuff we've talked about before, Sean, that, that I know that you share, is that that work is a fundamental human good, that, that there is something related to producing, not just producing, but producing and working together, working community. It's a fundamental human good. It seems to be natural uh, to human beings, and it's something that all persons should have access to. So I think there is a tendency in our society to think of work as a means to an end, and particularly that end is a, is a financial end, that you have to work. Work is a bit of drudgery that you have to do so that you can get the cash to pay for what you really want to do and what really makes you a human being, which is, you know, I don't know, going to the club or, or you know, buying fancy first edition folios or, uh, you know, whatever it is. The work is really just a means to get to an end, and, and it's really drudgery, and it's something we should try to avoid. And if we could have you know, all of our money without work, then we'd somehow be happier. And you see that all over the place, like gambling, uh, Lotto 6, you know, Lotto 649, just imagine, right? Like if you just had the money, then you'd be, then you'd be fully free. And Cardis, I think, along with many others, and I think m most people are beginning to recognize this, is that yes, work can be drudgery and work can be extremely difficult. Sometimes it can be unjust, but we are made to work. And one of the fundamental principles behind this paper is that Disabled people are people, they're persons. And because they're persons, they too have that desire to work. And we can talk a little bit later about how that shows up, shows up empirically that that's true as well, but that's one of our basic principles. It emerges, this project actually emerges out of our, our bigger project called Work is About More Than Money, which we've talked about before. So that's, that's thing number one. And so sort of emerging out of this is that our social policy should be biased towards facilitating access to meaningful work and to its monetary and non-monetary benefits. So we're saying if there's a social policy, we should be actually biasing that policy towards allowing people to fulfill those desires. You know, there's one of the empirical studies in our paper that we cite um, suggests that 80% of people who are disabled want to work. And that's actually a higher percentage of people who want to, like if you're disabled, it's a higher percentage of people who want to work than than those who are not disabled. And so there's a clear desire there. And we think that our social policy should be, should be tilted towards that. So that's the second principle. And the third one, which many think is at odds with the first one, but I, I don't think it necessarily is. But the third one is people should have a living wage. And I know that that sounds like, you know, uh, you know, your listeners may be saying, okay, what kind of socialist are you bringing onto this show? <laughs> but 
again, it's it comes out of our out of our tradition is that people should have enough money to live on, that nobody should be left in a situation where they don't have enough money to provide basic clothing, food, and shelter. And there are there are huge debates, Sean, about what a living wage is, how do you calculate it, and so on. But the reason why we included that principle there is because I think, and this gets at your next question about why we included this overall and, and why others are hesitant towards it, is because I think too often in our in our policy debates, you actually have two poles set up that seem to be mutually exclusive, which is we should have people work because if you don't work, you don't deserve to get paid. And if and if you're not working, then you must be on such dire circumstances that you need income support from the government. And what we're saying is that what we're after is a living wage. And our hope is that more and more of that living wage can come from employment income. Uh, we know that, for instance, uh, only 34% of, of people's income on disabilities comes from employment, as opposed to 74% uh, for those who are, um, even those who are poor, who are not disabled, 74% of their income still comes from employment. So we would like to see more because as a result, you know, just towards that, that bias towards work that we talked about earlier. But there are many, many cases where people with disabilities are not able to get even 75% or, or what have you of their income from employment. And so we do think that there's an important role for, in this case, we, we would suggest there's an important role for the state to provide income support so that people still have enough to, to make a living without you know, without being destitute. And I think that those things, those things need to be held together. And I, I think that's critical. And I think that there's, when we start talking policy at the end of it, uh, we can get into that a little bit. But so then you ask the question, you know, why do people hesitate? I think in general, Sean, and this is a, uh, you know, I'm just going to be myself here. I think in general, liberalism, which is the sort of dominant ideology of our day and age, really focuses on procedure. And we like to sort of sidestep the questions about what does it mean to be a human being? Because those questions are controversial, right? People people are concerned that those, you know, because they're so controversial and they're not clearly delineated by empirical research, they involve questions of judgment and it involve questions of studying history and looking at human uh, interactions over time, that sometimes it's just easier to, to sidestep it or to assume it. And, you know, without implying any malevolence on anybody's part. I think sometimes it's just easier to just assume it and just go for with your procedural stuff and, and set out your stuff. But we we actually think the two of them are more interesting when they're held in common because I think you can get creative solutions like the ones we're proposing here that take some of those those binaries in our cultural and our, our public debates around politics and actually find new creative ways that are based on, I think, a deeper and richer view of the human being. And I think that's probably healthier for society to just own that up front and, uh, you know, Cardis tries to do that all the time, but in this paper, we're pretty explicit about it. And what's interesting is I think that there's, there's actually a high degree of consensus. There's more consensus, I think, uh, in our society on what it means to be human than some people would imagine. And so we try to start that discussion as well. Let me just say before we get into some of the key findings and recommendations of the paper that as a reader, I just found it useful to have you and your co-author set out you know, what sometimes referred to as your priors, but basically refers to the underlying values that you're applying to these questions, which begs the question, it seems to me, Brian, measured against these principles and the evidence that underpins them, how is Canada's system of disability benefits and supports performing? Well, I mean, you can take the global picture and you can take the historical picture. And in that sense, we're actually doing pretty well. It is 
better to be disabled in Canada in 2022 than it was to be disabled in Canada circa 1780 or 1790. So I think that's now you kind of laugh at that. I think that's probably true for many things when it comes to income and our our uh, well-being. So that's say, OK, that's fine. Globally, I think it is it's better to be a disabled person in Canada than it is to be a disabled person in, say, the Democratic Republic of Congo or even in places where there are wars like Ukraine right now, for instance. I think so. There's there's the general sort of well-being of peace and prosperity that that we we've been blessed with here. So those that's good. Overall, though, we're not doing as well as we may like might like to think. I think sometimes that sort of global and historical perspective can say cause us to rest on our laurels. But if you, if you look at it, it's not that great. I mean, uh, as I said earlier, only about thirty five percent of people's uh, income who are disability come from employment. There's very hard time working. People who are disabled have higher levels of social isolation than people without it. They are drastically overrepresented in poverty rates. And that doesn't even include the question of whether or not we should be measuring poverty for people with disabilities differently because of the added costs and so on that they have. And there remain, I think, significant uh, barriers to hiring and uh, significant barriers to people earning that living wage that we're talking about. So overall, okay, but I think there's uh, quite a bit of room to improve. One of uh, those barriers is something that's referred to as the so-called welfare wall or what economists might call marginal effective tax rates. Depending on one's disability benefits, taking on work may actually leave people worse off. Maybe just talk a bit about that. What is the welfare wall and how does it manifest itself in the world of disability benefits and programs? So the welfare wall is, to put it sort of crassly, is the degree to which your income that you're receiving from being on some sort of welfare payment, whether it's a disability payment or whether it's a, an, a, an employment support or what have you, where the costs of leaving that program that you're enrolled in are higher than the returns you get from leaving it to go to become employed. So that's, the, that's in rough sort of broad strokes what the welfare wall is. And it is true that, you know, despite our, I think, and we've talked about this before, despite sort of broad tripartisan consensus on the good of work and an increasing bias towards work in government programs, like through the Canadian Workers Benefit and other stuff, subsidies, Sean, that you've talked about in other places and so on, there are still, in a variety of disability supports, there are still walls in which the cost of going to work are higher than the cost of staying on the program. And sometimes that's strictly in terms of income, and that's the easiest one to find, right? So if you're going to lose, you're going to get um, a lot of times on the left, they talk about it as a clawback. But what effectively that clawback means you're going to lose a percentage of your income or a dollar amount of your income for every dollar that you earned. And many cases still in Ontario or not Ontario, in Canada's employment and disability relationship, there are still clawbacks that are not actually good. They actually function as a wall rather than the ramp, which is what they're supposed to be. And I'm surprised, actually, that's when we talk about some of our policy recommendations, that's the low-hanging fruit. That actually came up in our discussion from, you know, NDP uh, supporters and conservative supporters alike and liberals as well who said, look, this is the low-hanging fruit that we should get rid of. We should be getting rid of that wall, bulldozing it and turning it into, into a ramp. So that's one. But there are other ones, Sean, that are a little bit more subtle, and that involves things like the relationship of non-direct financial benefits, like, for instance, pharmaceutical benefits. So you may have, uh, let's say that you have schizophrenia, and which is a, uh, a, a mental illness, 
and you have to take a certain amount of medications. Those, those drugs cost a lot of money. And to go into the workplace, you not only need to earn the income that's going to replace the disability supports that you're losing, but you're also going to have to get onto a benefit plan that can cover those costs. And I think that's another area of low-hanging fruit, that we can look at how those supports can actually you know, be put in place to allow people to work more and not less. And so that's just a couple of examples where it shows up in the world of disability policy. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. In your last answer, Brian, you touched on the mix of programs, benefits, and supports available to um, persons with disabilities. In some cases, those are direct cash transfers. In other cases, uh, it comes in the form of services or, or other indirect benefits. But one thing that struck me in the paper is that the share of disability programs still tilts heavily in favor of income support programs as opposed to more active work-related supports. What do you think's behind that? Is it a philosophical issue or is there something else that over time has come to orient so much of the way in which we we help and support persons with disabilities um, in the form of, of income support? That's a good question, Sean. And it's one that actually was unknown. And I think we actually alluded to, to the fact that it was unknown in our paper. So the sort of history is there have been a disproportionate number of people moving onto disability uh, supports. So that rate, the number of people on disability support has been growing at a rate faster than the number of people with disabilities, or at least that at least at least seems to be the case. And so there are questions, and, and some of these questions have been asked really well by, by various scholars, including people like John Stapleton, who said, what has happened actually is not that there are more disabled people, but that because other income supports have been uh, moved or shrunk or taken away, that disability support is actually a substitution for other income supports that have been taken away. Um, so that's that's an open question. So, you know, it, open question is, have we defined disability in such broad terms that we've actually made it not desirable, but we've placed an incentive for, for people to get on the, the roles of disability? That's that's an open question. I think there are, there are debates about that, Sean. And in some cases, the answer might be yes. In other cases, it might be no. We do know that when you look at the, um, the ratio of money spent on income support versus uh, employment supports. And by employment supports, I mean supports aimed at increasing people's employment income and time spent at work, that there's a sort of gross inequality there and with a vast majority of it being spent on income supports. Now, there are real questions around and our paper doesn't take a position on whether or not that balance is imperfect. Like, you know, it doesn't try to say that really what we should be aiming for is 50-50. Because I think, as we also allude to in our paper, like disability is a very, when you, we say disability, we, we're using one term, but the population of people with disabilities is very heterogeneous. It's, it's very, very complicated. Um, something like a muscle sprain or a, a, broken, a broken ankle that may heal over time is considered a disability 
alongside chronic diseases like MS or what have you. And so it's a very diverse question. And and that's that's the real hardship. And that's what makes this such a difficult tap, uh, topic to tackle from a, from a policy point of view. Well, let me take you up on, on that point. As you say, Brian, there is a spectrum with regards to disabilities. And that manifests itself in different labor market outcomes. There's something like a 20 percentage point gap the employment rate for those who are disabled and those who aren't, but it it's, it grows to as much as a 50 percentage point gap for those who are severely disabled. So why don't you just talk a bit about the disability spectrum and how public policy ought to reflect these differences? Right. That's one of the questions, Sean, that we asked was, to what degree is it wise for policymakers to focus on sort of a legible, simple approach to disability. And so there are advocates for that. And, and I think there's something to that. Uh, for instance, one of our partners on, on the policy roundtable we did, Disability Without Poverty, is advocating for a type of, I wouldn't say it a universal benefit, but a disability benefit that would cover anybody who's qualified as disabled and provide a certain amount of income for them to achieve that living wage issue. But the question is, because there is so there's so much diversity within that, um, you alluded to the fact you you mentioned the two categories of you know severe and less severe. The other bit is that uh, our our data show that people with mental illness, for instance, actually have have higher disproportionately higher levels of unemployment as well. It's harder for them to get uh, access to work. So that's another another sort of wrinkle in that discussion is what type of disability and. If you look at our paper, we actually produce a wheel. We looked at different provinces. We showed these are the various programs. And I think our programs are set up to address the vast diversity of what disability actually is. So it's got, you know, there are programs run out of Veterans Affairs for soldiers who've been injured in war, who have PTSD or what have you. All kind, Again, those things may be everything from a, uh, a small wound to a significant long-term um, uh, trauma dealing with that mentally. So that's just one. You've got variety of programs for, for those just in the veterans affairs, uh, let alone employment supports, let alone other things like assistive divisive program. So I'll give you an example of that. I have a colleague who has some physical challenges and she needs braces. The coverage for those braces comes from the Ontario Assistive Devices Program. I'm a diabetic. My insulin pump comes from the same program. Two very, very different examples. So I, I'm afraid I don't have a nice, neat and tidy answer for you, Sean, but it does show just how complicated dealing with this is. And I, and whenever we get into complication and whenever we get into uniqueness of personal situations, I think it's there that you have to start asking questions about the limits of the government's ability to properly address these questions or whether there should be a unique way in which more relational contexts could provide better care. And so... You know, for instance, I know that in some European countries, it is trade unions, for instance, that uh, distribute and and work out uh, workers' compensation benefits, for instance, rather than the state itself. And I think I think there's something to that. I think there's something to that that we might want to explore. It doesn't answer the question, but it at least open the door to some new ways of thinking about about policy with in this regard. Well, the paper observes that this isn't the final report in, in the series, and the project will take uh, shape over time. I, I, I can't help but succumb to the temptation to ask you at this stage if there are any preliminary policy directions um, that you think government should be moving towards. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to I'm happy to go out and say a couple of things because I think they're fairly low risk, and this sort of emerged in our in our roundtable uh, as well. Is I mean, I think there's some I alluded to this earlier. There's some low hanging fruit, Sean, in terms of the welfare wall. Um, there are some grades that are too steep. Uh, the relationship between disability supports and employment income. I think those can be leveled quite a bit. Um, uh, providing greater incentive. Uh, for those who want to work to work. And, and in fact, it's probably a better the incentives there. It's just a better way to talk about removing the barriers. And that's why we called this paper, you know, removing barriers. I think there are surprisingly quite a few of those still left out there. And I think those would have the broadest multi-party support. I think you could probably get those, you know, digging down into places like British Columbia. I know uh, it has some real issues there. Ontario has some as well. That looking into sort of workplace not always subsidies, but ways in which you can actually support people in their work rather than making it too much of a challenge. So I think that's the low-hanging fruit uh, is to start in that direction. The other one, Sean, and this is, you know, we talk policy and people immediately think government, but I do think, and and we are really uh, grateful to have representatives from chambers of commerce and banks and so on at our event, is that employers have a huge role to play in this. I mean, clearly employers are the people who employ people and that's sort of I know a genius, right? I, I'm, that's why they pay me. That's why I work for a think tank, Sean. I can say uh, brilliant uh, statements like that. <laughs> but, but one of the things that came up in our research is that employers often think that the cost of hiring somebody with a disability is higher than it actually is. I think there's this concern that you know employers are worried about stability, they're worried about productivity, they're worried about you know lawsuits, all this other stuff. But it turns out that the costs are actually significantly lower. I think, you know, I think the average cost for an accommodation is less than $500. And so when we're talking policy, I think what we're, what we're actually talking about is actually bringing those who are deeply involved in the labor market into these discussions to show them that the returns are high and the costs are low. And because there are actually high returns, like there's, they've, there's some data out there that show that uh, people with disabilities tend to be more reliable in terms of showing up for work and on time. The customers love people with disabilities. Like, and I'm not saying that's particularly, but there's a the, all of the things that the assumptions and and I'll, I'll just say stereotypes or maybe even biases that people have um, saying that there's going to be problems. Actually, the data show that the reverse is true, and so there's lots of good work being done there. And I think that that's uh, places for like chambers of commerce, uh, CFIB. You know, local uh, local groups getting together to say, look, let's actually make a, a an effort to hire people with disabilities. I think the government could be doing some work around that, too, and actually do provide a lot of work. A lot of those accommodations I mentioned, you know, in my early sort of opening about the person, the, the imaginary person who doesn't have use of their legs, that ramp um, could be paid for um, by the government. There are plenty of supports in that regard for 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 that type of thing. And I think that's another area to sort of build those out uh, and to look as well. I'm glad uh, you emphasize the role of business in, in this story. Uh, one of the proof points or data points that struck me the most in the paper was some evidence that not only, as you say, disabled workers make positive contributions in their own right, but that there seems to be evidence that it that it affects the productivity and experience of the rest of the team. And so especially in this era of labor scarcity, one can't help but think that those employers that come to see persons with disabilities as um, potential employees uh, will have something of an advantage. Brian, let me just wrap up with a kind of big picture question that is, 
related but somewhat separate from uh, the conversation that we've been having. I've been struck um, that growing demands for redistribution in modern society has involved uh, government programs moving up the income ladder such that there's a growing number of Canadians and Canadian households receiving some form of government support. Is there a risk, though, um, that this can come at the expense of marginalized groups such as persons with disabilities? In other words, isn't one of the arguments in favor of a more limited and constrained welfare state that enables us to dedicate more scarce resources to those who really need it? And if you accept that premise, I'd be interested in your thoughts on what explains this sort of tendency away from really targeted support to those most in need to this trend of more and more public resources going um, to more and more people. That's a great question to end. And it's actually going to loop back. My response will loop back to that very beginning question you asked about why would we put our principles out there. And I think what you're really talking about is not necessarily a more limited welfare state, Sean. Like it, it might be that the, that the end result is actually less spending on uh, social welfare, what have you. It might be. I don't want to. I actually think you can be agnostic about that question about the size or the more or less. And I'm not agnostic about it. But for the purpose of this discussion, I think you can be because what you're really asking when you're talking about people who are more or less in need is you're asking questions about what is just and what is unjust. Right. You're talking about a just distribution of of resources. And I absolutely I absolutely think you're right that particularly in the case of disabilities, we have spent billions of dollars giving money to those who public money to those who certainly can use it. But sometimes that comes at the cost of those who need it. And I think in the world of disabilities, this is clearly the case. We have a long-standing challenge with poverty. 20% of people on, on who are disabled are, are on poverty. That is, that is crazy and unacceptable. And the fact that this is happening at the same time, and I know that this is going to cause some of your listeners to roll their eyes, but that, that this is happening at the same time when we're promising people who are earning hundreds of thousands of dollars, $10 a day daycare, I think is a, is a, an unjust allocation of, of public resources. I just think that that's a, that is a totally legitimate thing to say. And, you know, everyone will sort of respond by saying, you know, well, why can't we do both? And I'm like, well, the record has shown that we haven't done both and that the record has shown that we have been more prone towards expanding the list of things that provide support to those who may or may not need it. We have not had the question we have not had the argument about whether or not people need that and ask real hard questions about that. And I think that's worth it. And I don't want to get to the point where, you know, historically in social policy, Sean, there's there's the question of the, the those the deserving needy and the undeserving needy. I think too quickly uh, people will say once you start getting into that type of question, you start getting into this sort of moralistic uh, view of, 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 you know, social policy and social distribution. But I actually think those questions are unavoidable. I think there are people who have greater needs and and who have lesser needs. And, you know, uh, I'll just just personally say I get significant. I have four children. I get significant support from the government to raise those children. That's wonderful. I, I welcome that. Like, I'm you know personally, my bank account's very happy about that. But if it came down to a choice about whether or not my benefits need to be cut back 10 percent, 20 percent, so that somebody who's actually on poverty right now can do that. I think that would be a just reallocation of resources. 
we can reallocate our resources through supporting groups like Indwell, which provides affordable housing for, for people with disabilities, mental disabilities in Hamilton. That's good. I encourage people actually to give, um, you know, this is my routine pledge for P or a plug to get people to continue to give more of their money away if they don't think that allocation is just. But I do think it's an important question, Sean, and I'm, I'm glad you asked it. I wish we would be talking about those questions of justice more often. Well, uh, one way to better support persons with disabilities is to increase their ability to participate in the workforce. And to the extent that that's a policy goal, people can read uh, your latest paper co-authored with Joanna Lewis. It's entitled Breaking Down Work Barriers for People with Disabilities. Uh, listeners can find it at the Cardis website. Brian Dykma, thank you for joining us for today's Hub Dialogue. Always a pleasure, Sean. You ask great questions. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening. <laughs>